Hi, I'm Chris Klink, and you're listening to my Writing Table Podcast. Trish Dohler is the author of books about love, life, and finding your place in the world. A former journalist and radio personality, Trish has written several young adult novels, including the critically acclaimed Something Like Normal, as well as Float Plan, her women's fiction debut. When she's not writing, Trish loves sailing, traveling, and avoiding housework. She lives in Florida with an opinionated herding dog and an ex-pirate. Welcome, Trish. Thank you. It's great to be here. Trish, you published six books in the YA genre. What made you write women's fiction? So I started working on Float Plan about seven years ago. Wow. It was not long after I read Wild by Cheryl Strayed. And I kind of said, I want to read this book again, but on a boat and (laughs) make it romantic. (laughs) So that didn't exist. So I wrote it. And even though I was kind of writing YA at the time, I really couldn't imagine a teenager on a boat alone. So it was clear that this was going to have to be a novel for adults. I finished it and I loved it. This just had a little bit of everything. It was just lovely. So I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Float Plan is your first adult novel, and it features a woman working at a Hooters-esque pirate-themed bar who ends up on a sailing trip in the Caribbean with an Irish sea captain. I mean, that's like layers. How did you arrive at this mix? It was a long journey to get to that final iteration. Anna started out as a student who drops out of college to go sailing in the original version. There was another minute version where she was a teacher and there was another version in which she worked in multiple Hooters style restaurants (laughs) and kept getting fired because she didn't show up for work because she was grieving. And I even tried at one point to give the boat to Keen and have Anna apply for a job as a nanny to his child. But that was a big no. So eventually what I realized is that I was focusing too much on that part of Anna's backstory that wasn't really all that important. And when finally let that go, I reached that point where the Hooters place seemed like a good place for her to work because she didn't have to be responsible for anyone other than herself. And when she left that job, she wasn't like hurting anyone. When you say that you tried some of these other things and they didn't work, was that a matter of like, were those conversations with your agent or was that just something along the process that you realized this isn't working? I've got to try something different. This was all just in my head. The original version that my agent and I tried to sell unsuccessfully was Anna as a college student. And I don't know whether it's because she was too young for women's fiction market or you know, new adult hadn't really kind of morphed into a thing that we all kind of thought it would be. I think that she just wasn't fitting in the marketplace. And so I tried all of these different things, trying to figure out what exactly her issue was. And then I realized the most important thing was to get her on the boat. And once I got her on the boat and shared that with my agent, she was like, yep, there it is. (laughs) Remind me, what age did Anna end up being? Um, She's 25. Okay. And I listened to the audio book and I really lost track of how old she was. I could see her being, she was so relatable at any age. And I just want to credit you for making her someone that a 51 year old woman can relate to. Like I could, granted I'm clumsy and I would fall off the boat five minutes after getting on, but she made her very relatable. And that was just a lovely feat in writing. (laughs) 
Thank you. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I she could have basically been any age. And at one point, I'm pretty sure my critique partner was like, why don't you make her older than Keen? And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to read that. You know, so, <laughs> I think so now that I've got my feet wet in writing women's fiction, I'm like, yeah, maybe I could see writing a story like that. <laughs> well, living in Florida, did you conduct firsthand research on sailing? Yes. Yes, I did. My husband and I actually have two sailboats, which seems excessive and it kind of is excessive, but we do sail and we have done a bareboat charter in the Caribbean, which was oh, wow. vacation part research. We are outfitting one of our boats to basically follow Anna's route through the Bahamas and the Caribbean. I've been really lucky because I've been sailing with my husband for decades. I am nowhere near an expert sailor, but he is. And if I ever have any questions, it's always like, hey, Phil, what would happen if X? Or if I need Y to happen, what do I need to do? And so he was really good with that. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a scene that is like a breakneck scene that you had me breathless. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know if she's going to make it through this. And it was really exciting. Have you ever encountered something so exciting when you were on the I, boat with your husband? Fortunately, I have not. We have had moments when we've been sailing in big seas and I don't really do great. That particular crossing that Anna and Keen make in rough weather, like mm -hmm. we're going to have to make that crossing someday. And, you know, we've been looking at the scenarios and looking at if we have to wait forever for a weather window, we'll probably do that because I don't want to put myself in any sort of dangerous situation. The whole point is to have a good time, you know, and at that point in Anna's journey, she wasn't really there for the good time. She was there for the getting through it. You really put us there on that boat. But for those of us that grew up on dry land, far away from the ocean, a couple goes out on the sailboat and you're going to sail up the seas together. I never thought about that. You've got to have someone at the helm the whole time. You've got to have someone steering the boat. And when that boat was going up, I could feel my stomach bottom out over and over when she was going through those rough seas. You really put us there. I, I, I can't imagine doing that myself, but you gave me a little bit of taste of the experience. <laughs> All I want for a while. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Until your next book comes out. Do you think you'll return to YA or stick around in the women's fiction genre? Well, right now I am contracted for two more books kind of set in the float plan world. The next one comes out next March. And then the following year, we'll have a third. Um, Yay! Yeah, I know. I'm very excited about it because they're you know, Anna and Keen kind of come back in each of the books. So that's going to be fun. Aww. I do also have kind of three more ideas lined up in my head that are adult. So I'll probably stick in women's fiction for a little bit longer. But I mean, if the right YA idea kind of came around, I would probably write that too. So I'm definitely not closing myself off to YA. Are the conventions all that different between women's fiction and YA as far as page count? Like, you know, with like romance, there's kind of a formula that you have to have within so long. You've got to identify both the main characters, the love interest, and then you've got to have the happily ever after. Is there a convention like that not in really. YA? Not really. I mean, I feel like all of my books kind of do maybe have their own sort of formula, but I've never, you know, like no one has ever said like, hey, this is how it has to be in order to be YA. I mean, I've read YA novels that are hundreds of thousands of words. And my first YA novel was just barely more than 50,000. So 
how many words it takes to tell the story. All right. Well, Flow Plan offered a healthy dose of humor and romance, but it also involved some serious themes. How did you arrive at that balance? So I wish I had a really helpful and instructive answer for this, <laughs> but a kind of walking that line between levity and gravity is kind of my brand. I feel like all of my books kind of have that that element, those elements, but I also feel that that's kind of like how life works. You do have moments where you're heartbroken or miserable or angry at life, but moments of joy and laughter pop up or reverse. You can have a happy life and those moments of, you know, anger and sadness interject. And so it's like, you, I don't really feel like you can have one without the other and not, and have a story that's well-balanced and well-told. Certainly was well-told. Thank you. Keen Sullivan is probably the most unique character I've read in a long time. Was he in the original plan or did he evolve along the way? Okay, so the interesting thing about Keen is that he got his start as the love interest in a YA novel that I started <laughs> working on before I even thought of Float Plan. So Keen was 19. He was working for the summer in Florida three jobs. One of them is he was delivering Chinese food on a moped. He was kind of crass, liked the ladies, drank a lot of beer. But the one thing I knew about him, even before I got very far into the story, was that he, underneath all of that, had this really solid, good heart. And that project never really got off the ground. So when I started writing Float Plan and I needed a love interest who, who was good enough, for Anna. I kind of dusted him off and aged him up and put him through some stuff of his own and arrived at kind of an evolved, more mature version of that original character. He was something else. Again, you painted these characters so well that you could just see him and hear him. I mean, it was, and your audiobook narrator did such a good job on his voice. She is amazing. I loved her. I loved her rendition and I loved her keen. The thing about him is sometimes I feel like I have zero control over that character because I started adding him into a scene in my next book called The Sweet Spot, which features Anna's sister as the main character. So while they're all in Florida together, Rachel is sharing this story and he literally just takes over the scene. And I... <laughs> I mean, it wasn't something I'd planned. It just happens. He's like his own person. And sometimes I wonder if he actually exists somewhere. <laughs> Isn't it funny how those characters do that? Where you just, yeah. you can't control it. And yet you don't want to shut him out. It's like, all right, come on in. Exactly. <laughs> your room here. I feel like the worst case scenario is like, you're going to get a whole bunch of material that you don't use. It still builds on who they are so that even if that scene gets cut, you know them a little bit better. So mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's no downside to letting, uh, you know, letting Keen Sullivan loose. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, it's kind of like talking, if you were writing nonfiction and you were doing interviews for whatever topic and you talk to someone about, you know, that topic and they go on and maybe go off into some tangents, still teaches you a lot about that subject. And, exactly. and I find that with these characters, when we let them ride as far as they want to go, it, it does that. It teaches us a little more about that character and makes us write richer stories, I think. But, exactly. Um, 
talking about cutting things, were there scenes you ended up cutting that you wish you could have kept? Definitely. I loved Anna as a college student. Like that's ultimately that version. If I could have found a publishing home for it, I would have been thrilled. So the front end of Float Plan was loaded with with college backstory. And I cut a lot of that. I cut all of it actually because I changed your age. But there was still a scene that existed in which Anna went to a boat yard where the boat was being kept. And one of the men working there gave her a big manila envelope that had Ben's suicide note and Mm. all the other paperwork about the boat. And so, you know, she kind of breaks down. She spends the night on the boat and it's the following day that she decides to leave. And she leaves from this boatyard instead of where she leaves from in the finished version. And it was lovely. I'm happy with the way the book starts now, but that scene was really nice. And I wish that I could have kept it. What challenges do you feel women's fiction authors face when making their stories stand out? You know, we're in a pretty tight crowd as far as the women's fiction genre space. So do you feel like there are challenges that you face as a women's fiction author to make your stories stand out from the crowd? Honestly, I think the biggest challenge is that women's fiction isn't take, doesn't isn't always taken seriously as literature. So right. you know, we don't have a men's fiction category. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even sure why there needs to be a separate category. Like, like somehow women's issues aren't real issues. You know, I used to get that question too, when I wrote YA, when are you going to write for adults? And I'm like, why do I ever need to? I mean, as it turned out, I did want to write for adults too, but it's like, there's nothing wrong with women's fiction just being fiction. But that said, I think that people also make the assumption based on the cover or just what they think they know about women's fiction, that what they're going to find inside is not going to be serious enough or smart enough or whatever, that I think it's all going to be romance or it's all going to be light and fluffy. And I think that that's just not true. I agree. When I started writing in women's fiction and I'd have people ask me, well, what is women's fiction? And I'd say, well, let me just put it this way. If I were a dude, they'd just call it fiction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, but I, I never thought about that before, but that's probably right. It, it, women's fiction designates it as not necessarily romance. And isn't that funny that we have to carve it out so tightly versus, you know, Nicholas Sparks can write something about football and also write romance. And no one's really asking him to pigeonhole what he's writing. Exactly. Um, is it Grisham that's writing the sports stories and the mysteries? And, you know, it's so different for women. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about how your plot, do your characters changed from your first to the final draft. Did the plot lines, as far as the, the voyage change? The voyage changed a little bit. Really, what I had to do is like, I kind of envisioned where she would go. But like, as I researched, I had to figure out which places would be the best places for things to happen. And I had a full version. I was working on editing it and Hurricane Irma and Maria hit. And some of the places that Anna and Keen went to, you know, they still went to like at Christmas when Keen and his brother basically go down the hill to go to church. The church doesn't exist. 
anymore. Um, you know, in the way that it, like, it's just walls now there's nothing left. And so they have an annex where people go to church. And I changed that to reflect the fact that the hurricane went through and one scene, it's a, you know, it's, it's particularly romantic scene with Anna and Keen and uh, Martinique that had yeah. originally happened on Dominica, but Dominica got really badly damaged and Hurricane Irma, and it just didn't feel respectful to send them to a place that at that point in time was really still trying to sort out the mess and rebuild. And so those were the biggest changes as changing some of the places that they went to so that it could reflect what had happened. Because, you know, like we've talked a lot about how COVID fits into fiction. And I think that we can ignore COVID because, yes, you know, we want to escape that whole year of quarantine and pandemic. But I don't think it's fair to like ignore devastating, you know, a hurricane that has left the, the landscape different to go and act like it never happened to me just felt really weird. Right, right. When you sold this novel, how did you celebrate? <laughs> In every way possible. I Yay! bought a champagne. We went for an expensive dinner. We bought a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I Yay. blew up the, the cover art to poster size and hung it on the wall. This book, I've loved all of the books that I've written, but this one, when they talk about the book of my heart, this one is it. And this is the book that if I had never written another word, after this book, I could still end my career like happy. Oh, wow. I'm glad that I don't. I'm glad there's more books <laughs> to come. But if something, someone had said, this is it, that's the end. This is the only book that you'll ever publish ever again. I would be okay with that because I love it. I wrote it for me and I could read it forever for the rest of my life. And I'm really happy that other people are enjoying it too. <laughs> it was truly satisfying. It really was. What are you reading now? So currently I am reading a science fiction called The Last Watch by J.S. Dewis. And, you know, it's kind of one of those like lost out in space. We don't know if anyone's coming to save us kind of thing. And I am loving it. I also recently finished Namesake, which is the second in a YA fantasy duology by Adrian Young. And that was such a satisfying and exciting finale because I love her work. And I also just finished For the Wolf by Hannah Witten. It was like a fairy tale mashup of Little Red Riding Hood and Beauty and the Beast, oh, but fun. with its own unique spin. And I'm a sucker for books that feel like fairy tales. I love fantasy and I want to write a fantasy someday. So I read a lot of fantasy. I say read in, read in your genre and around your genre. It sounds like you're getting that done. Yep. <laughs> Have your author friendships made you a better writer? Yes, absolutely. I have two really solid critique partners who are both published authors, and they've been my friends for quite a long time. And I've always talked about how the two of them are kind of like the opposite sides of a coin. So Suzanne is my cheerleader who always like, she keeps me motivated when my motivation is low or she's like, Hey, do you want to do some writing sprints today? And she just keeps me going when sometimes I don't want to go. And Kristen is the person who says, yeah, okay, but what if this, 
or, but do you really think that would happen? Or she's always the fly in the ointment for me and she drives (laughs) me crazy with it, but she always helps me find the right story. I think that having author critique partners, people who are on the same level with you. And it's hard to work with people who aren't published, which is nothing to say, nothing bad about people who aren't published. It's, diff- it's just more difficult because they know the process that you're going through with you. You know, they've been there, done that. Well, they understand the time frame that you're on. Exactly. And Kristen and I do a retreat every year and we invite other authors to join us. And I feel like those kinds of things too. Not only, you know, is it about the camaraderie and having those author friendships, being able to bounce ideas and feed off each other's energy. Hopefully soon. Well, tell me like these critique partners, because you've done so much YA, did they write YA or did they write women's fiction? Um, So both of them are YA authors. Um, So how does that work? Is there a bit of a shift as far as like, are there things that you send over and they go, they maybe don't understand that. Or, I mean, is there any, anything that gets lost in translation? Never, because I think writers are writers are writers. And so, you know, they can help no matter what. What's the worst writing advice you've received? I think the worst is like the idea that you have to write every day. Like it's a job. And I mean, it is a job. It is a job. But I mean, some days you just got the well is dry. And I think you need to replenish by watching movies or reading books (laughs) or spending time with your family. So I think some people can succeed at that. But it's just to me, it's not going to ruin my life unless (laughs) I have literally one day to turn the book in and I'm not done yet. But I'm also a procrastinator. So maybe that's why I hate that advice. I don't know. (laughs) You know, Camille Pagan says, if you give yourself like five hours, that's like almost too much time. You need to give yourself three hours because then you won't waste any of it. And, and I found that to be true. I tend to bust a move when I have less time, but that, that makes I sense. also stress out a little bit sometimes too. <laughs> I use the Pomodoro technique mm-hmm. where you write for 25 minutes, take five minutes off. And then I find when I start getting on that roll that I will just write through the five minutes. And I'll write for four hours straight and then take a break. So I really find that like if I have that kind of that little mini deadline, then I start really getting serious. What is the best advice you received? So we kind of just touched on this and this is to read outside your genre. So if you're writing rom-coms, then sure, you want to read other rom-coms to know what what's out there to know what people are doing. But I think that there's so much to learn in reading science fiction or historical fiction or even nonfiction. And you, you know, there are techniques or there are literary devices that you might not even think about unless you've read them somewhere else. I read a, an arc of the new Lemony Snicket book. True. One of my YA novels, I have an opening and an ending that are very similar. They they almost mirror each other. And I got that technique from Scott Fitzgerald. So it's like, there's so much to learn by reading outside your comfort zone. When is the sweet spot coming out? So that one comes out on March 8th of next year. Ah, I know so it's so long. It's so long. But I have started working on the third book. And that one right now, it's still the working title is Along the Way, but it could mm-hmm. stick because that's a pretty good title. That one features Anna's best friend, Carla, and uh-huh. her love interest is. Keen's brother, Eamon. And that one will be out 
I would guess because we're doing March releases that it'll probably be out in March of 2023. Trish, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Music by Pavel Uden and photography by Casey Meineke. Sound editing by Podcast Engineers. If you like what you're hearing, hit the subscribe button and consider leaving a review. 